0: Open uh, your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Kind of hover there for a while. If you'd lift your hand up, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming down front to give you one. Um, and then you can as well turn. I think it's 569. I can't remember the page numbers. Yes, 569. Luke chapter 17. In a few minutes, we'll, we'll uh, read that passage together, but I want to get ourselves up to speed on the Doctrine series. This, uh, um, this is the last week in our 13-week series on Doctrine, and last time I talked to you, I, I kind of tried to put it in file form so that you could retrieve the pieces, because it gets kind of complicated, 13 weeks, trying to manage all of them individually, but if you just think about where we started, there were four weeks essentially on the person and the work of God. The image of God created in, the, in, in human hearts, the, the Trinitarian God, God made, all those things were a look at God, and then we interrupt the story with the sin, uh, that, that man fell in Genesis chapter 3, and everything else is a so what from God to redeem, right? And we spent four weeks talking about the gospel, that God made a promise to himself to redeem a people for himself, he died on a cross and rose again, those are the pieces we talked about in the four weeks preceding the fall discussion. And currently, right now, we're wrapping everything up with implications because of salvation, that grace of God by faith alone and Christ alone changes people's hearts, and there's a so what to that. The implications is this thing called the church, Christ's bride, that represents him, ambassadors in this world. We talked about worship, that out of the heart, the overflow of the heart is how we live our lives in worship. Last week, we talked about stewardship, that our lives aren't ours, they're, they're God's, and we steward them. Today, we finish with a discussion on the kingdom. And there is a lot on the kingdom, and uh, we're not going to even scratch the surface. But we are going to try to kind of encourage you today on thoughts in the kingdom. But before we do, we need to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to kind of show up here and encourage our hearts and our lives. So would you pray with me? God, your, uh, your work in our lives and in this world is hard for us to fathom that in spite of the opposition and the sin and the hatred that exists between men and you, you came anyway, and you gave. And you peeled back the darkness and the hardness of heart and the death, and you bring life and peace and hope. And so here here we are, many of us who confess you as Lord and Savior now, um, in this process in the kingdom, to be your kingdom agents and representatives here. God, there's so much to be said about what you're doing now in your kingdom and what you will do in the future kingdom, and and so don't let us get confused. God, would your your Holy Spirit uh, supersede this moment and speak directly to the hearts of your people? We pray for his help in this time. Amen. Like I said, we're finishing today with the kingdom. Uh, I did a little uh, concordance search, 2,300 references in the scriptures to a king. Uh, 300 and some to the kingdom of heaven. New Testament is like 163 references to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, this idea of the kingdom is an important theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Sermon on the Mount, everybody's familiar with it. The most famous words ever of Jesus. He begins his earthly ministry saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. A- an amazing, an amazing uh, beginning to his ministry. And f- for one sermon... He overwhelms his audience with the ideas of the kingdom, and here's why, and we're going to get to the bigger reason in a minute, but culturally speaking, for this Hebrew audience, the kingdom of God was everything. Now, they had a different version in mind than what Jesus had in mind, but he starts with this overwhelming thought, repent, It's here. Everything you've longed for, for those hundreds of years in exile, everything you've wanted is here now in your presence. Big statement, right? Bold statement. And he goes on and says things like this. He says, now, the kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit. In fact, if you're not impoverished in your soul, you can't have the kingdom of heaven. You've got to just imagine this audience scratching their head right out, right off the beginning. Really? Like, you have to be poor in spirit to inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says in, in, in Matthew 5 that unless your righteousness doesn't do better than the Pharisees or the teachers of the law or the religious people, you won't have the kingdom of heaven. Really? Because the compass, the moral compass of our society is those teachers of the law. And if my righteousness doesn't do better than their righteousness, I have no part in the kingdom. Those are scary words for this audience. Jesus says, and when he's teaching on prayer, he says, this is what you do all the time. Pray for the kingdom to come as your activity. Seek first. You know this in, in chapter six. Seek first the kingdom of God. Like there's a priority structure in your life is to seek first the kingdom. And then ultimately he finishes with a kind of a warning where he says, everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There has to be something more than just what you say. There's a radical difference. We're going to talk about that difference today. And most of it will be reminders. But um, in fact, I want to finish with this. In, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus is being depicted having a sole theme in his ministry. He went throughout the villages and the towns and the synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom. In fact, his message was a kingdom message. He was inviting this audience who had a thought about the kingdom as some physical, man-made ruler on a throne. He was changing all the rules. And his whole intent was preaching the kingdom. Luke chapter 17, in fact, in the the gospel of Luke alone, there's 27 occurrences of this idea of the kingdom of God. And it's totally understandable because the New Testament is all about the kingdom's king. It's all about Jesus Christ. He is presenting himself as everything they were hoping for, but not what they expect. In their minds, it was something much simpler, and so I want to stop before we get into this passage in, in chapter 17, and, and I want to make it really clear that the kingdom of God is not a new thought here in the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God didn't arrive with the Messiah. The kingdom of God is an Old Testament idea, and it's, it's coming to fruition in the New Testament, but if you go all the way back to the garden, you have the kingdom of God. You have, you have the people of God, Adam and Eve, dwelling in the place of God. Here's, here's Eden, and then... They're following the, the rule of God. They're willing participants, willing obedience to the, to the rule of God. And I suppose that's the best definition if you're trying to decide, Tim, tell me what the definition of the kingdom is. This is as simple as it gets, right? It is the, God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Adam and Eve were God's people. They were in the place of God called the garden, a place of, of perfection that God provided for them. And they were submitting themselves willfully to to the king. And then there was this bad event in chapter 3. We all know it, right? The fall. That our great, 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 great grandfather decided to rebel against God and believe the lie from the tempter that somehow he could be like God. And he decided to disobey. God is holding out on you. Don't eat of the fruit. And he does. And so here's the consequence. It wasn't just bad for him. It's bad for all. He plunged every person who ever lived into sin. Now our compass that was free from all the outside control, free to think about God the king, free to live in his place under his rule. We were free in the garden. The sin now put us in prison, enslaved to our sin. Our choices were sin. Our desires were sin. It wasn't God. The Bible says we were enmities with God from that point on. That was the story in the garden, interrupted with with sin. And the rest of the Bible, all of the entirety of the scriptures is about the restoration of the people of God to the place of God under the rule of God. The whole thing. In fact, if you pick up little spots along the Old Testament, just so they're not detached in your mind, you can see types and examples throughout. So when God calls Abraham and says, listen, I'm going to make for myself a people out of you and I'm going to give you a great nation, right? You have Abraham in, in essence as a as a covenant getter from God, the covenant maker, that God promised Abraham descendants, right? God's people. And he promised them God's place, the promised land, and he promised them God's rule, the law. You follow me. There's that picture. You get to David, you get to Solomon, you got kings and types of God's people under God's rule and God's place. But they're just examples of of what's to come. Even after the fall of Israel, the exile into Babylon, all the prophecies... From then on, point to someday, 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 right? You've read it. Someday the kingdom, a great day is coming when the perfect, everlasting, never breaking up kingdom of God will show up. That's what the Hebrew people had their hope in, that someday it'll happen. In fact, the end of the Old Testament um, ends looking forward to that event, that God's kingdom would come. And then begins 400 years of silence. And in this absolute fog of uncertainty and confusion, like, God, you promised, you promised, and it's been hundreds of years, and all this exile and oppression and everything else, they were kind of in their mind, kind of, what's it going to be like? What, the, what is the kingdom going to be like? And so they kind of wrote their own um, expectations. And that's where this kind of cultural sensitivity to what's going on in, in Luke chapter 17 is very important, because in their minds, they were thinking, here's what God's going to do. He's literally going to re- restore David's throne. He is really going to remove the oppression of Rome and all these other things, and he's going to restore us back to a place where there's a man to lead the nation, and we'll have the good old days. We'll have the good old days of prosperity, and we'll be a major earth power. It'll be the kingdom of God, right? That's as far as they could think, that God would change the circumstances of people under Rome without a king to lead, and he would just reverse it all. That's the mindset of these people when Jesus shows up preaching the idea of the kingdom. Now just imagine the appetite for the people when he says the kingdom of heaven is hand. And if in your mind everything for 400 years has been hoping and hoping and hoping that God would establish his kingdom on earth and you're telling me it's here. In fact, every other sentence out of your mouth is about the kingdom of God. They're just getting really, really excited about it but Jesus spins the idea and communicates a whole other version of kingdom. And that's the mindset here in Luke chapter 17. I want you to read with me starting in verse 20, verse 21. We're going to make a, a couple of points out of this before we dig deeper, but... Verse 20, here's the Pharisees. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, remember that's huge on their agenda, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observance, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God, I don't know what version of text you have, it says is among you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you, right? The NIV uses the idea that it's, that it's within you, but the better use of the word is among you or, or in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is here. Can you imagine what they were thinking? They were thrilled. The disciples, right after that, verse 22, said, uh, he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see the de- one of the days of the Son of Man. And on and on he goes to talk about a future tense of the kingdom. So here we have in two simple verses what appears to be a very confusing answer to the question from the Pharisees. This kingdom... He says it's here, it's in your midst, it's among you, and it's something to come. And that's the reality. The definition of the kingdom is it is a already but not yet. As Christians, as sinners saved, we live in a, in a tension of knowing that everything that was available in Jesus is ours in the kingdom. And yet there's a future promise to come. There's something else waiting in store, and so there's, a, there's an already and not yet part of this kingdom thing we got to take a look at. So let's start with the already piece, because that's his response to the Pharisees in chapter, in chapter 17, verse 21, the already part of the kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is referring to is the kingdom that resides in the hearts of men by faith and repentance. It's sinners saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the kingdom he's talking about, the reign and rule of God in our lives. In fact, there's a, there's a title used of Jesus that describes the essence of what it is to know the kingdom. He calls himself Emmanuel, God with us, which was totally different from the garden on because the garden, it was God with us. Sin separated God from man forever unless God didn't do something about it because God is holy, right, Church? And sin is not like God. In fact, the sin so twisted our thinking and our responses that the, the Bible describes us in terms like this, dead and unresponsive in our sin. At enmity with God, at war with God. There's a, there's a huge power struggle going on. There's a separation. The, the divide that exists between the perfection and the holiness and the perfectness of God and the sinful condition of man is cataclysmic. It's so huge and so big, I can't describe it. It's worse than I can describe. The distance between God's standard and his holiness and his person and his character and who we are with our sin without a covering is just un, unsurmountable. So here's the message that Jesus came to preach. It's among you. It's in your midst. What was he saying? That there's a change now available. There's a hope now available. That our broken relationship with God, that chasm that exists between God's holiness and my sinfulness, can be healed through King Jesus now. Let me read a couple passages to you. Uh, We've read these before in some of our, our series together, but this is what it says. You can't argue with this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe the all part? Every person who ever lived, I don't care how good they are in comparison to you, falls short of him, right? That's the reality. All are sinners compared to God's holy standard. But here's the good news. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as the sacrifice of atonement or the word that is propitiation, the the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath being stored up against sin through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. Our broken relationship with God can be healed now through King Jesus, and that's what he came to say. They didn't get it. In fact, the disciples didn't get it until the Holy Spirit came. They're wondering from a distance, how could this be? What is he talking about in the kingdom? But we know, we get that 2,000-year 2020 hindsight. We can look back at the cross and go, that's what he was doing. That that gap that existed between God and us is being bridged by the sacrifice of Jesus. This sacrifice that satisfies God's standard of holiness. So King Jesus deals with our brokenness by healing it through Christ. He gives us righteousness through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, listen to this, verses 18 and 19. Consequently, consequently just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. That's talking about Adam and, and Eve so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous. Righteousness. It's the absurdity of Psalm 103. That God says, listen, as far as the east is from the west, however, words can describe the distance between my ability to remember your sin and your sin is separated. You can't bring those distances together. I will remember your sin no more. You are righteous in my sight. Because God, you know, we've talked about this. We've been covered in his holiness. We've been given a gift of righteousness that we did not earn by faith alone in Christ alone. His work that I believe in is what changes us, right? Amen, church? That's the truth. Our righteousness is through King Jesus. Now, it's not a future hope. It's a kingdom right now, just like our healing is a healing right now. Jesus talks about himself in John chapter 10, verse 10, and I've come to give life and life to the what? Fullest, abundant life. Now, he's not talking about a future. King Jesus has arrived, people, and he's giving healing and forgiveness And relationship and life, everything apart from God, on your efforts to try to make sense out of your life, the Bible calls death. And only living through Christ is it called life. And He's come to give life now. The scriptures tell us uh, again in John 16, Jesus said this I've told you these things so that in me you can have peace. I don't know what it would have felt like to be Adam, to, to know the difference between it was good. And it's not good. Do you know what I'm saying? Like for us, we were born in our sin. We woke up hurting other people. Adam didn't. He understood clearly what it was like to lose that position. And I got to imagine, just like you, just like me, if we ever fail at such a high degree, we, we kind of lay awake at night staring at the ceiling. Oh, my gosh, what did I do? And we look for ways to cover our tracks. I hope nobody finds out. I hope my wife doesn't know. I, I hope... Uh, God, can you just overlook this one? Can you make it go away? We beg for peace because of our life. And Adam knew what it was like to lose peace. Jesus arrives right now to give peace. Because you know that uh, conscience that condemns us? Church, you know what I'm talking about? You're overwhelmed with you. Jesus is the only answer. And it's not future. You don't have to wait for peace, you don't have to work for peace, you don't have to buy peace. He gives it as a gift. It's by faith. It's absurd. I get it. It's crazy. Nothing else in the world works like this. But that's just a description of how bad sin is. You can't fix your problem. If you're the one who created it, you can only make it deeper. God has to come. in the person of Jesus Christ to offer life and healing and peace. Amen? That's the already part of this. Everything you need to know about the kingdom is seen completely and perfectly in the king. You know, this is a true statement. If you, want to know, if you want to know about a leader, all you got to do is look at the environment. So pick it. Pick whatever boss you work for. If I walked into your environment and I watched the workers, the employees, I go, I, I know what the leader's like somewhat. I had a, I had a coach in high school, a wrestling coach, who did not know how to wrestle. Seems odd, right? He didn't teach me anything. He was a marine sergeant, and he was an angry man. He did teach me that. And uh, we didn't know a lot of wrestling moves, but we were scrappy. Because what he was, what he was, fiery, spitting, red-faced, angry man, is the only thing we could emulate. We could do that. Didn't know how to take you down, but we could hurt you. That's all, that's all I knew. It took, on the, it took on the demeanor of the leader. You want to know about the kingdom church? Who do you have to look at? Jesus, look at the King. Everything, everything you hope for, everything you dream it to be, in its perfection is found in Christ. We got little dim versions of it now, like looking through like an opaque glass, but someday, someday it will be fully seen, it'll be fully known. Everything we need to know about the kingdom is found in Christ. The scriptures describe him as the last Adam. We had an Adam that consequentially gave us all sin. We have a new Adam in Jesus that gives us life. Amen. There's, there's a resurrection. He's our representative. He came down to this earth to get in our mess. He didn't stay at a distance, and he could have. He is God. He could have stayed over there and just said, listen, you screwed up, it's over. He decided to take on human flesh, come to this earth, and get down in it with us to experience temptation without sin. To experience suffering and rejection and hatred and all the things. he said, The Bible says he was tempted in all ways and yet without what? He knows. He triumphed over that temptation. He triumphed over sin and Satan and death. He won in his resurrection all the things. And so here he is as our representative, the true fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham, I'll make you a great people. And here we got a king who's making for himself a great people called the church. We see the fulfillment of, of God's promise to David, I will establish your throne forever. King Jesus is on that throne, church, forever. Jesus is the king of a new people. In fact, the scriptures tell us in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are new creatures in Christ. That old is gone, right? Amen? Positionally speaking, whatever we were trapped in our sin and rebellion, it's gone and the new has come. We're new creatures in Christ. Who's the king of the new creation? Come on, church. There you go. Feel feel free to be proud about that. It's Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9, the writer says this, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Our king is Jesus. The kingdom that Jesus is referring to in chapter 17, verse 21, is the kingdom. Now, in the hearts of men, by repentance and faith in Jesus alone. We got no other hope. We got no other option. Religion won't do it. Effort won't do it. Trying won't do it. You can't get there on your own. Because even if you were great at it, you'd be stuck looking up at His holiness. I can't get there. I can't fix it. I, I can't make myself better. And that's the truth. The standard was so high that God had to fix it for us through his righteous life. That's the already. But Jesus goes on to talk to his disciples here about a kingdom to come. And again, like I said, there's so much about the kingdom that we could just barely scratch the surface this morning. But let's just use this passage in in Luke 17 to kind of unpack a little bit about it. Here's what he says in verse 22. And then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there it is, or here it is, do not go running after them. There is a future, anxious, coming, expectation, pregnant, pause, feeling to the kingdom. He's telling his disciples, yeah, I'm here, it's here, this life change, heart change is all here, but there is a day coming. This this thing you fight with called the flesh, there is a day coming where I win that one too. Someday, it's coming, and you anxiously awaiting it. You long to see it. He says in verse twenty-two, and it's true. He also says in verse twenty-four, it's going to be undeniable when it happens. For the Son of Man is in his in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. I, I have no idea, other than what it says, that I think when the sky is filled with the light of His return, we're going to know it, Church. It's going to be undeniable. The world won't deny his presence at that point in time. It's anticipated and it will come and it'll be seen. Everyone will know. But there's a truth that happens in the midst of that in verse 25. He must be, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his this generation. We clearly know reading the gospels that Jesus was rejected by his people at the time. But he goes on being rejected in this gap between what God has started and kind of completed spiritually in Christ that he's going to bring to fulfillment in the death of sin ultimately, there's this, there's this gap here where Jesus is constantly being rejected, not just once to the cross and death, but he's rejected today, isn't he? I, I don't know if you pay attention to football much. Um, I read a lot. Um, but have you been paying attention to this Tim Tebow thing at all? Anybody know who Tim Tebow is? Yes. Okay. He's a football player. Um, some call him the greatest college football player to ever play. I don't know about that. Maybe he is. But he's in the NFL now, and they're just, they're just dogpiling. They, they don't uh, think he's much at all. And there's this huge argument in the press world and in sports reports, um that it's about his faith. There's this divide now happening between writers saying it's because of the Messiah is why they're rejecting him as a football player. It's kind of absurd, but at least they're arguing about it. And they say, listen, if, if, if it's because he presents Jesus, that's why everybody hates him. And now you got news reporters arguing. And here's why. And you know this. Because gee, it's impossible to be indifferent about Jesus. He's always been the dividing line. When he came 2,000 years ago, he didn't jump in the, in the scene and say, I'm one of the options. I'm part of the smorgasbord. Take me if you want. He declared absolute authority as God, as the truth, as the way, as life, the exclusive where there is no other option. It's interesting that the world, even though it doesn't get the gospel, it doesn't get the gospel, it gets that. The reason why Jesus is so offensive is because he doesn't leave any room for anything else. He just doesn't. He's not a good guy and he's not a good prophet and he's not a great teacher alone. He's God declaring absolute authority over over his creation and his people. And when he says that, all deals are off. Now there's all this rejection and war over the fact of what he claimed, right? It's interesting to me when you watch people who deny he even exists wrestle with his claims. It makes them angry. What are you angry for? You don't even believe it. What are you mad about? It's not true, right? But they know. Somewhere down in this God-created soul of us, you know that there is truth. In order for truth to have any meaning whatsoever, it's got to be absolute. Otherwise, it's not true. And for Jesus to say, I'm it, when no one else did, it kind of cramps your style, doesn't it? Really? So if you're truth, all this other stuff is true that you said, like this idea of king and lord is true, Jesus talks about a day when the kingdom will come, and it'll come with a, a little bit of anxious anticipation, longing, right? It'll come, and everyone will recognize it. It'll come, but all this rejection will be seen in its midst. Verse 26 through 30, it says it'll catch people off guard, just as it was in the days of, Moes, of Noah, verse 26, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. I think there's two truths that are seen right here. And that is that, that people will be shocked that it happens. And I think this statement really proves in verse 26 through 28 and 29 is that people are indifferent Right? Average everyday life gets more, more attention than Jesus is king. Because their priorities are all screwed up. Noah's going, hey, repent, there's going to be this flood and it's going to kill everybody on the planet, right? No, I choose to uh, build. I choose to eat. I choose to marry. I choose, I choose, I choose. It just doesn't matter. What I'm doing matters more. Remember remember Lot and his wife? Run, sin, God's going to judge. And Lot's wife looked back. What happened? Yeah, why? Because, because in essence, her priorities were screwed up. Wait a minute. Over here, back home, back home. That's really good back home. I want to go back there. And he finishes this passage in verse 34 and 35 with this idea of God's omniscience. He says, I tell you that on the night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. There is a separation to come. And I want you to get the point of that passage. Jesus describes the oneness, at least from our vantage point of people. One bed, all together, look the same, but something's different. One grinding mill, two there working, but something's different. The omniscient God-knowing part seized hearts, people. We We say this all the time. For those of us who are in Christ, that's good news. It's terrifying for those on the outside looking in. God knows our motives right now. He knows our hearts. So you all look great. One building, one room, one room in the conference center. The person sitting to your left and right looks a lot like you do to me. I don't know. But God knows. And the reality is there's going to be people listening to my voice right now talking about Jesus the king offering life and peace for your death and your separation, and you're, going to, you're just going to play the game. You're married to a guy who really does trust in Christ, and you're just hanging on, and, and ultimately the omniscience of God will separate the two in the kingdom. What does the text, what does the Bible tell us? Jesus says there are many who say, Lord, Lord. Some prophesy in my name. Some have many flashy things going on around them. They're very religious. They have lots of activity. But in the end, what will he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. God does that, people. The kingdom is uh, what you feel about the king and the kingdom. It's life and death consequences to it. We can look forward to the future of the kingdom because we understand that it's, it's coming And the scriptures say that we are to pray for its coming and to be encouraged by its coming and to long for its coming. That's true. It'll happen. You won't be able to deny it. You'll experience all the pushback of Jesus in a time like this. It'll catch people off guard and people are massively indifferent to who Jesus is or what he claims to be. And ultimately, when it's all said and done, there are going to be a bunch of people going, ah, wait a minute. Because God's going to sift. He's just just going to know. Now, that's a truth that Jesus describes in this short little gospel story. But there's a couple of questions I asked myself when I was thinking about teaching this. I said, what what do people ask a lot? And I get this question a lot, so I thought I would just answer it. And that is, if you're thinking about a kingdom tomorrow, now, we got the first part, right? The kingdom is seen in our presence in the person of Jesus Christ saving sinners. Faith and repentance in Christ alone, right? Kingdom of God, right? God's people, God's place, and God's rule. But there's a future kingdom coming when God says he's going to deal with the flesh that is at war with the spirit in me. So the question I want to answer is this. Is there judgment for God's people? Yes and no. Last hour I said let's pray and they freaked out. So I'm not going to do that to you. Yes and no. First of all, let's start with a no. Is there judgment for God's people? No in regards to sin. Now you should have just cheered right there. That's your cue. Because <laughs> if we believe the scriptures, we're all sinners and we all fall short. So no judgment for sin. Let me uh, remind you of a couple of passages that you're aware of. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, what's it say? There is now no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why, church? It's because it's already taken place. God has opened up the storehouse of wrath, and he poured it out on his son, who was standing in our position. He was, he was being our advocate. When he hung on the cross, God transferred all of the sin to his son so that God's wrath could be poured out, and God would be just, and God would keep his promise. He bore it. Why is there no judgment? Because it's already happened. Amen. It's already happened in Christ. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 5. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and, I, and they will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That's true, church. No judgment. But I have had people ask me about what does the judgment look like, and I want to describe two particular parts to the judgment. Um, if you want to take the time to turn over to Reve- Revelation chapter 20, It's somewhere around page 671 or 2, something like that. There are two aspects of judgment that we'll talk about here the yes and the no part of it. Here is, I've already described no for um, sin, but there is this judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment that is for those who want to go it alone, who don't want to go with the covering of Jesus' righteous robes and they just go it on their own. Here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is a second death. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, I'm going to say it differently. I don't think this judgment, this eternal hell consequence to sin is for unbelievers. Now, listen very carefully, because don't go tweeting this. It's for rejectors, Because at the moment they stand before the Lord, everyone's going to believe. Amen. There will be no denying it's true. There'll be no denying it didn't happen and it isn't theirs and they don't deserve it. When you stand before the Lord, you're gonna go, I am undone. I don't belong here. I'm a sinner here. And God's gonna say, you rejected me. And the reason why people spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell is because of rejection of his offering of grace through faith alone in Jesus. That's the story, church. Do you get it? So it's for rejectors. People, when it's all said and done, have lived their life saying, I can handle it. There's another option. My God wouldn't, and they just fill in the blanks. Someday there is a judgment for people who reject Jesus' offering of life for your death, grace for your failures. That's the truth. So if you're in Christ, if you confess Him as Lord and Savior, there is no condemnation. That's the best news I could ever tell you. There is no judgment. God's not going to bring it up because it was completely and perfectly punished in Jesus. There is a judgment, though, and it's the one I want to to kind of remind you of. And it's about God being jealous for his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you can look at it, page 627. Here's what Paul says about this judgment, and I'm going to define it here in a second. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. Key phrase, whether good or bad. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Page 619, if you've got that Bible with you. And I'm telling you these passages so you can circle them and come back to them. You're gonna to need to spend a little time with this. But this is, again, Paul's take on this other piece of judgment. And he says in verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Stop. Here's what Paul is telling us, okay? There is this other judgment, and that word for judgment here is the word bima, and the idea is of a a competition judge. As as opposed to a criminal judge who decides guilty or innocent, this is a competition seat, a judgment seat that says, I'm going to hand out rewards for what we do In the body. So let me describe to you. I'm going to use a really cheesy illustration to try to help you come along. So let's pretend for a second that everyone in here is a confessor of Jesus as Lord and there is no other. You begin a journey with God that is about everything you do for the glory of God. Because God sifts what you do. He sees what you do and whether it's for him or not, right? So in essence, just, just cut me some slack on the word picture. So let's pretend for a second you're saved and God gives you a little wagon the moment you're saved. Everything you do is supposed to be for his glory. So you're out there trying and you go, You know, God, I, I love my enemies. And you take that little gift and you put it in your wagon and you're still, you st- keep marching towards the kingdom because one day you want to take this thing in the throne room and go, God, I did all this for you. God. So you love your enemies, goes in the wagon. You cared for, you stewarded your kids, goes in the wagon. You gave to the needy, goes in the wagon. You were confrontational, goes in the wagon. Or you were kind, goes in the wagon. Whatever you want to put in there, done for the glory of God. And you end up in the throne room. God goes, hey, thanks for coming. Um, let's take a look at your offerings. So he picks out of that wagon. Hey, you were, you were a nice guy. Let's take a look at why he was a nice guy. Oh, it wasn't for me. really wasn't. It? It was because you have a fear of man bigger than Texas. You're more concerned about what people think than me. His holiness consumes it. Hey, let's take a look at that meeting people's needs. Let's take a look at that one here. Oh, you did it because people knew you were given and you got your reward already. Whew, the holiness of God consumes it. You see, you can't lie to God. The holiness of God, the, the absolute passion God has for his own glory will about evaluate everything we do in Christ Because we can't offer him a counterfeit gift. He won't share his glory with another. You can't show up with something that was for you and for him. You get it? And the passage in in, in 1 Corinthians describes a very interesting scenario. That we're going to be there and God will evaluate whether it's gold or precious metals or wood, hay, and straw. And that was just just describe the value or the worth of the gift, right? And he says that some people will end up in heaven and suffer loss. Now, I don't know. You're going to ask me a question I can't answer. I have no idea what that's like. I don't even know what that means other than I can speculate, and here's what I think it means. Um, In fact, the writer says people will have all of their offerings consumed and they'll enter heaven with the smell of smoke on their clothes, just barely getting there because they got nothing to show for it. I, I think suffering loss is like this. When we enter into the presence of God, Everything's going to be crystal, like crystal. All the things you think right now are absolutely essential to your happiness and joy. You're going to be totally convinced they're they're false gods. Everything that you think you have to have in order to live a godly life, he's going to reveal to you. No, it's not true. You're going to be you're going to be right in the presence of God, and everything you feel about God, everything you know about God, will be crystal at that time. And you go. I wasted so much time. And when God's holiness looks at your offerings and his holiness consumes some or all or whatever, you're gonna go, gosh, now I know I wish I had more, right? Because it's about the glory of God at that moment. And that beam seat, that competition judge who says, listen, faithful are you, here's more in the kingdom, right? That part is gonna be a, a suffering loss. I'm gonna get back to that topic in just a little bit, but there is a... There is an absolute, I love it, I can't believe it's true, God will remember our sin no more. You say amen. There is another part, church, where we're living our lives saying out loud, we live for his glory, and it isn't totally true. That's the part that that beam of seed is going to deal with. I want to tell you also that there is a new reality coming in this future kingdom. You might already be there, but let me just refresh your memory of this this new kingdom in, in Revelation chapter 21. I call it the new reality. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the older order. the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, "I am making everything new." Where did tears come from church? Where does mourning come from? It's not a trick question. Where does it come from? Sin. Death is a result of sin. The promise, remember, that God made to Adam and Eve. If you sin, you will die. Death comes from sin. Mourning and tears come from sin. The the new reality, this new kingdom, someday this body of flesh that's at war with the soul, God-loving part of me, will be dealt its final blow and we'll have new bodies. And there won't be any sadness. And there won't be any sickness or death. There won't be fear. And I'm just going to add to it, okay? Restoration is exactly what he's doing. But you would stop short of all how good it will be if you stop at the garden as your example. Because the garden still didn't have what we'll have in the future. I call it it the garden plus one. Because what existed in the garden was the ability to sin temptation was offered temptation was taken and sin plunged man right into the consequence that's over in the new kingdom there is no more sin no more death no more dying and no more temptation no more struggle no more option to sin it's over folks the fight is over in the new kingdom smile smile it's good news it's over in the new kingdom a new reality so here's the truth Jesus has been gone some 2,000 years, and when he tells his disciples and he tells us his kingdom is here, it's among us. It's in us in the recognition of our sin and our depravity and our need. It's in us in our faith that, that we understand that our sin is punished completely and perfectly in Jesus. It's in our faith that our righteousness is a gift of God so no one can boast. He gives it. We don't earn it. We are his people, the saved, living in his place in the temple of Jesus living under his rule, the gospel. That's what it is to be kingdom people right now as we wait for this future hope. So I wrote another question to finish with, and it's this question. So what does it look like to follow King Jesus? It, let, let's say the Holy Spirit just showed up and convinced you abs, absolutely that this are your kingdom people and he is your king. What does it look like to follow him? The Apostle Paul said this in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me just give a little bit of instruction around that phrase. If you confess him as Lord. um, It's a confession not just with your mouth. It's a confession with your life. Can you think about that for a second, church? It's a confession not just with your mouth, it's with your life. So when someone is known as your boss, that means they get to call the shots. When someone's known as the coach, that means they get to call the plays. For Jesus to be Lord means he rules your life. That's what the confession says. You get it. I might not see it, I might struggle with it, but it's yours. It's all yours. I'm not trying to run it anymore. I want you to do it. Mark Driscoll wrote this, Jesus rules over angels and demons and Christians and non-Christians, moderns and post-moderns, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, healthy and sick, Republicans and Democrats, simple and wise, and the living and the dead. Jesus is not just the king who rules over nations on the earth and principalities and powers in the heavens, right? That sounds like way over there. Now, remember the, the phrase, um, who wears the pants in your family? That, that idea of who runs stuff, well, this is his analogy. But Jesus also rules over our pants, our web browser, our refrigerator, our debit card, our cubicle, our car horn. As our king, King Jesus demands and deserves obedient loyalty to his commands over every aspect of our lives. So let me just test you, okay? If I were to throw out a test, you know, we, we know Jesus as the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. If I say he's, he is the truth, you would say what? Louder. Amen. He's the truth. He describes himself as the very word of God. There is no other truth. It's all anchored in him. He is the truth. Everyone says yes. If I say to you he's your priest, he's the ultimate priest, meaning he sympathizes with weakness, he understands the hurting, he rescues the broken, we say... When I say he's king, what do you say to that? Let me test you. Because I think we fall short of that. I think it's easy to say. It's a whole other matter to live it. Um, some of the articles I was reading on this Tim Tebow thing, one of the arguments of one of the, you, you would even know it. It's the, it's the main writer for Sports Illustrated. said this about Christians in America. He said, 85% of the people living in this country are Christians. I know what he's saying. It's people that are okay with Jesus just cool. It's all right. And that's not what Jesus commands. He doesn't say, be okay with me. He says, follow me. Submit to me. I am the creator of the universe. I'm the king of heaven. I'm the savior of sinners. I'm the giver of life. You can't just be a cool with Jesus. You know, people who take surveys like this, I don't... um, they suggest that the moral, ethical priority structure, passion of Christians' lives doesn't look much different than non-Christians' life. I find that absurd, but I understand where they're getting the point because it's easy to say you're okay with Jesus. It's a whole other matter to say I live for Jesus. You know the phrase they like to throw around when they're talking about the church. You know that H word that painful word, they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, there's a reason for that, because we are, in our flesh, we're hypocrites. Because the way we buy stuff, and the way we spend our things, and and the way we live, we choose to say that there are things plus Jesus that matter to us. I'm going to read you another quote by Mark Driscoll in regarding this topic. In this form of religion, people know that Jesus speaks the truth as their prophet and loves them as their priest. So when they sin, they know that Jesus will forgive them and still love them. But they still rule over their own life. When they need help, they read the Bible or ask Jesus to serve them. Practically, they don't see Jesus ruling over them, but rather coming alongside them to help them achieve their objectives. He is only allowed to do so when he is invited. The result is a double life of hypocrisy in which we call Jesus Lord, call his word true, and then do whatever we want in some areas of our life. Because we think the pants are mine, the money is mine, the web browser is mine, the food is mine, the glory is mine, and I will rule as king over every aspect of my own life. Jesus is just a little more than a trusty assistant. So, to be a citizen of the kingdom and to follow the king means only one thing. King Jesus first. Easy to say, right? Do you believe it? Is it King Jesus first? So, whatever we're not willing to subject to his lordship... Whatever has higher priority, whatever sin we want to justify, you're looking at your king right there. That's your king. I'm not going to stop this affair because you don't know how much I need that. You don't know how bad my situation is. Our job isn't to make Jesus Lord and King. He is Lord and King, right? Amen? Our, our effort is to follow him as that. And why? It's because he's worthy. I'm not trying to describe to you a God who's hard to work with. I'm not just trying to describe to you a God who is so ogre-like that it's too, too intimidating to get close. God has done everything to understand our hurts and our struggles. He is a God of love and justice and so much so that he killed himself to keep his justice and to love you. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This king is worthy. He's victorious over sin. He's obedient to the commands of his father. He resurrected from the dead. He made certain our life forever. Why should you follow him as Lord? Because he wants the best for you. Just just as a parent would, right? We've all, most of us, a lot of us have had kids and sometimes we say no to something they think is absolutely essential for their happiness. (laughs) Why? Because we see the big picture. God sees the big picture. He stands back from your life. He sees it all. And he goes, this is the best. And sometimes I know we're more convinced that we see it more clearly than he does. And certainly that if if these things went this way, in fact, I'll just kind of eliminate God from the equation. I'll make these things happen because I'm certain they're essential for you. You don't. God knows what's best. And then one other reason why he should be served as king is because every other road is a dead end. If you're old enough and you've sinned well enough, you know what I'm talking about. There isn't any man-made effort to fill in the blank that ends with you going, that's what I needed. That's all I needed right there. I'm happy now. I'm fulfilled now. I've got peace now. I've got life now. Here's the promise. Every other road but King Jesus leaves you depressed. It won't fill you up. It wasn't designed to. It can't, it can't deliver. So you want life? Go to the life giver. You want peace? Go to the King of Peace. You want hope? Go to the one who knows your future. Every other version, you know this, right, church? You already know this. Every other version is just in the way. It's a dead end. It won't satisfy. Everything else is a lie. But King Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we confess right up front our sin. Our sin to fall in love with the things you give versus you, the giver. God, we confess that it's always a struggle, always a struggle for us to keep on the front of our thinking that you are the ruler of our life. You're the Lord of life. You're the giver of hope and the giver of peace. You're what we want. You're what we're shooting for. You're what we long for. It's all found complete and perfect in Jesus. The gospel story is too amazing for us to get our minds around. That God, in spite of our war with you, in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, you give through the gift of faith, grace, mercy, undeserved favor. So God, we accept it as true, we accept it by faith, and we ask that you would work in us to love you as our Lord and King.